0: So today we're going to start the Gospel of John, and we're going to look at the, give you a general overview of the the Gospel, and then, really, really quickly, then look at the author of the book, the Apostle John, and then start looking at verses 1 to 3, and we can finish by learning how to defend the deity of Jesus Christ against the cults and things like that. So first off, I'll pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for this awesome gospel, and we pray that you'll help me to explain it clearly and accurately, and Lord that we can understand and grow and and, uh, draw near to you, and be changed more and more into your image as we um, learn more about who you are in Jesus' name. Amen. The Gospel of John is very different to the other three Gospels. Now that you probably know the other Gospels are called the Synoptic Gospels, because they are very similar, and they repeat many events and parables. But John was written... I believe, much later than the other three Gospels, probably about 90 AD. And because the other three Gospels were already widely distributed at this time, John doesn't repeat him all those things. He just he provides stories and teachings that fill in the gaps left by the other accounts. And also, he has a purpose for his book, which is different to the others. We'll come to that in a minute. The book was written by John, the disciple of Jesus. And you can see this by looking at the the last few verses in John, John 21, 20-24, it says, Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following. Now that's John. So if you were aware of that, John refers to himself throughout the gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Who also had leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, But Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Then the saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? In other words, it's none of your business. Verse 24, this is the disciple who testifies of these things, the disciple whom Jesus loved and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. So we'll come back to why John always refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. It's a good little story there. Okay, now the main purpose of the book, you know the epistles and the gospels, they, they have a, a main purpose. Well, the purpose for this book is in found in John chapter 20, verse 31. But these are written, that ye may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So there's a twofold purpose. One is to convince a skeptic that Jesus really is God, the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us. And secondly, that this awareness would lead to a more abundant life. Now the Greek word translated believing speaks of a continual action. So it's something we don't just do once, but we keep on doing, we keep on growing in our faith. And so basically, the more we believe, the more life we will experience, the more of his presence, the more power in our lives. So the two reasons or purposes that John wrote the gospel are, one, to convince a skeptic, and two, to encourage the believer toward a continual growing belief in their Savior. Now, the other gospels, they all have different purposes. You probably know that Matthew was written to present Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. And what animal represents Matthew? Do you remember? The lion, yes, because it represents Jesus as the king. Mark was written to present Jesus as the perfect. Close, that's Luke. In Mark, Jesus is presented as a perfect servant. And the animal or picture that represents that is the ox, because the ox just, you know, goes through the fields and pulls the plough. And Luke shows him as a perfect man, and we have the human face to represent that. And John shows that Jesus was God, and we have the eagle to represent that. So if you go to the angels in Revelation and in Ezekiel, they have the angels with the four faces. And Also, um, if you study the Israelites in the wilderness, they had the four camps, and each camp had its own picture, and they reckon that those pictures were there as well. So, Matthew chapter 1 gives a genealogy of Jesus through his adopted father Joseph, showing that he had the legal right to rule. Mark doesn't contain any genealogy at all. He just emphasizes the life and actions of Jesus. Luke chapter 3 gives the genealogy of Jesus through his mother Mary, showing him to be biologically descended from Adam through the line of David. So he goes right back to Adam. But in John's Gospel, the genealogy is found in the first verse, as he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, Jesus was around before Adam. He always existed, before time began, as God. So, John's Gospel gives numerous evidences of the deity of Christ, that he is God, and you will see how many times Jesus describes himself in John, beginning with the words, I am. Now, this goes back to uh, Exodus 3.14. You remember when the burning bush, and Moses saw the burning bush, and he w- walked up there, and he asked, in the middle of conversation, he said, who shall I say that you are? And Jesus, God said, I am that I am. So I am is a name for God. Now, although the Gospel of John distinctly emphasizes the deity of Christ. It also presents clearly that Jesus was the Messiah, as when Jesus told the Samaritan woman that he was the Messiah. The woman said to him, John chapter 4, 25 and 26, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And John also presents Jesus as a servant such as when he washed the feet of the disciples in John chapter 13. And John also shows Jesus to be a human, to be a man, and the word became flesh, John one fourteen. So the Gospel of John is a complete picture of who Jesus is. And it's a powerful source or tool for bringing someone into relationship with Jesus. So a lot of people recommend that if you're going to give a book to someone who's looking to become a Christian, the book of John, the Gospel of John, is a good one to give them. It helps convince a skeptic, and it, for the Christian, it helps them to grow in their life with God. So let's just take a look, a closer look at the Apostle John. Who was he? What was he like? What happened to him? Why does he refer to himself in third person as the disciple that Jesus loved? I'd like to just quickly, before I start on him, go to Second Corinthians three eighteen. It says. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So, this is our sanctification. This is us being changed to be more and more like Jesus. So, in other words, Paul is saying that we become more like Jesus when we spend time looking at Jesus. John says a similar thing in his first epistle, First John three two. When he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So, it has an application not only eternally but presently. For when we truly see the Lord, it just happens. It's God's plan that we become like him. We are transformed. Now, I've got an example of how this works. of, Of why hanging out with someone can transform. You probably know that verse, bad company corrupts good character, and it works the other way too, right? So David was fleeing Saul, Saul's chasing him, and he's hanging out in the hills, and 600 men gathered around him, men who were in debt, distressed, and discontent, First Samuel 22. 2. And as this ragtag group of renegades spent time with David, they became more and more like him, like David. So much so that as the years passed, these 600 rebels were transformed into one of the finest fighting units of history. They were David's mighty men among them. So too, we today are a ragtag group of renegades who are likewise in debt, distress and discontent. <laughs> but as we hang out with our greater than David, the son of David, Jesus Christ, we will begin to find ourselves experiencing and exhibiting his characteristics, his flavor, his fragrance. We will find ourselves changed from glory to even greater glory as we behold him. And that's why the Gospels are so important. They let us see who Jesus is. And as we look upon him, the more we become like him. So why am I saying this? Well, John went through an incredible transformation. I'm don't know i not sure if you have studied the, the life of John the Apostle, but it's amazing. Let's start at the end of his life and how the Bible describes him. He's described as the apostle of love, because more than anyone else in Scripture, John both preaches and personifies love. His ministry is one of restoring relationships and knitting people together in love. You don't see him evangelizing very much. I don't think there's any, or um, well, there's not many examples of him doing much public talking. Have a look at um, 1 John 2, 8-10 and three fourteen. It says, again. A new covenant commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. And verse and three, verse fourteen. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. So, as I said, he's the apostle of love. John didn't die a violent death, all the others did, but they did try and kill him. Do you know how they tried to kill him? Church history tells us that they tried to boil him in a vat of hot oil, so that it wasn't God's time for John to die. And so when they couldn't kill him, they sent him to the island of Patmos, And that's about 50 miles off the coast of Turkey. And it's a nasty place. There's no water or anything there. And people are sent there to die. It was a quarry as well, so they could break up rocks as you're dying. Lovely, okay, especially for an old man. And it was the Roman Emperor Domitian who ordered John to be put into a cauldron of boiling oil. (laughs) So if you like names and details like that. And while he was on the island of Patmos, he received the Book of Revelation. And here's a quote from someone. Uh, It says, Following his release from exile on Patmos, so if you're interested to know what happened to John after that experience, probably nearing 100 years of age, John returned to Asia Minor, that's modern-day Turkey, where he went from church to church, sometimes carried on a stretcher. He's a really old guy, should be in retirement home. The historian Eusebius tells us that when John would come into the meeting places, people would break out in applause for this one who knew Jesus, this one who had leaned on his breast. Give us the word, John, they would say. Tell us something heavy. But all John would deliver was a single-sentence sermon. Children love one another. From church to church, John travelled with his single message, children love one another. Why don't you say something a little more weighty, a little more meaningful, asked an elder. Eusebius says, John looked at the elder in the eye and said, The sole commandment of Christ is to love, for he that loves has no need of anything else. So that's John the Apostle at the end of his life. That's what he did, that's what he said. So, for me, this is really freeing. You don't have to worry about things. All you need to do, all you have to remember, the only thing that God really wants us to do is to love other people. And you apply that to witnessing. How do you love someone who's not saved? Well, you witness to them because you're concerned about their eternal salvation. How do you, and the same in our families, you know, you treat them well because God calls us to love other people as He loves us. And of course, we can't do that on our own. It's something that only happens as the Holy Spirit gives us the strength to do. So, all we need to do is not try and change people, not try and figure things out, but just love people and God will do all the rest. Now, John was not always this way. (laughs) John was initially a walking powder keg whom Jesus called a son of thunder in Mark 3.17. So, we will look at some examples. Firstly is Luke 9.49 and 50. John said to Jesus, Master, we saw someone using your name to cast out demons, but we told him to stop because he isn't in our group. But Jesus said, don't stop him. Anyone who is not against you is for you. So, John was upset because someone outside the circle of disciples was using the name of Jesus to see people release some demons. We told him to stop because he's not part of our denomination. (laughs) He doesn't share our doctrinal understandings. He's not one of us. And today we do this as well. People can be saved, blessed, helped and strengthened. But because we might not have doctrinal agreement, we put them down because they might worship differently from us, we find fault. That's not the way of love. One would think the Son of thunder would have learned, but the text goes on to tell us differently. And I'm not saying that you don't discern between right and wrong. Obviously there is some wrong stuff, and it's okay to discern that it's wrong. But there's a lot of people who, you know, for example, some like hymns and some like choruses, it's okay. It's not a big deal. Now the next example of the Son of thunder uh, Luke nine fifty one fifty six. 56 Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is Jesus heading to Jerusalem. And sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him, because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when the disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. So he rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village So here's John saying, come on, Lord, let us me and you cast down fire. Let's blow these guys away. John answered Jesus, don't you understand? I didn't come to hurt, I came to heal. I didn't come to blast people, I came to bless them. So, fellow saints, hear the word of our Lord. He is not out to find fault. He is not out to put down. He is not out to critique. He came to save. John heard this word, and yet he continued to exhibit thunderous tendencies. Let's go to Matthew this time. As Jesus was Matthew twenty seventeen to twenty one, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside privately and told them what was going to happen to him. Listen, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem, where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die. Then they will hand him over to the Romans to be mocked, flogged with a whip, and crucified. But on the third day he'll be raised from the dead. Now you think that this would be important to them, but what do they talk about? Then the mother of James and John, the sons of, sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus with her sons. She knelt respectfully to ask a favor. What is your request? he said, or he asked. She replied, In your kingdom, please let my two sons sit in places of honor next to you, one in your right hand and the other on your left. So... <laughs> Put yourself in in Jesus' shoes. You just told your closest friends that I'm about to die. And what are they more interested in? Their position in the ministry. Where they would sit in the kingdom. So Jesus was right when he called John and James a a son of thunder, because that was his nature, finding fault with other ministers or other people, wanting to cast down fire at unbelievers, concerned about his own position in the kingdom. But there's one good thing about John in these early days, and that is he was loyal. For of the thousands who came to see Jesus heal lepers, open blind eyes, and raise the dead, only hundreds came to hear him teach. And of the hundreds who heard him teach, only 70 would actually follow him. Luke chapter 10, verse 1. And of the 70 who followed him, only 12 left everything. And of the 12 who left everything, only three went with him to the Mount of Transfiguration and prayed with him in Gethsemane. And of these three, only one was at the cross. That was John. So John lacked love, but he had loyalty. And perhaps that's why, from the cross, Jesus looked down at this loyal disciple and commanded his mother into John's care. You find that in John 19.26. So my question is, when did John become the apostle of love? When did he change from being the son of thunder to the apostle of love? It's just like night and day, it's two different people. Well, I believed it was at the cross. I believe it was when John finally realized how much Jesus loved him. And I believe this is the reason that Throughout his gospel, he refers to himself not as the disciple who loved Jesus, but as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So John knew he was a son of thunder. We know who we are. So therefore, it was no surprise that John loved Jesus. After all, we can't help but love someone who was so gracious and merciful, so powerful and so kind. The surprise is that Jesus loved him. The, The surprise is that Jesus loved us. And that's why as we spend time in the Gospel of John looking at Jesus, we see him loving us. For like John, we see Jesus as we see Jesus. We will slowly change from thunder to love. And as we realize God's love for us, and we are changed into that image. As we study the book together, let's keep in mind the main message of John's Gospel John closes his gospel stating that the world could not contain the books that could have been written about Jesus' life and works. And because of this, John is very selective in what he chose to record. He based his entire account upon only eight signs or miracles. Sign is something that points to something. So these miracles had a purpose. So there are no boyhood incidents recorded. Jesus' baptism is not mentioned. There is neither a record of the temptation of Jesus or of his Gethsemane, Agony, there are no publicans and no demoniacs, and John chose not to write about what much of the synoptic writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, spend a great deal of time recording. So the first three Gospels center on Jesus' ministry in Galilee, and John centers his Gospel on what Jesus said and did in Jerusalem. So John chose to write about the seven signs or miracles, or eight, um, that Jesus used to illustrate his great I Am statements. So remember Exodus 3, 13 and 14? What is your name? Moses asked God. I am that I am. Uh, answered the Lord. And that basically means, if you do a study on that, I am everything you need me to be. I'm the ever-present one. I'm the eternal one. He's not I was or I will be, but I am the ever-present one. So Jesus comes on the scene, and he echoes that same declaration of deity, and in John's Gospel he says, I am the bread of life. I am the Good Shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection. I am the vine, and I am the door. So he's kind of filling in the blanks. He's saying, This is who I am. So, with that, that's our little intro. So, let's, um, if you've got your Bibles there, open to the book of John, and we'll start with verse one, and we'll just do the read the first three verses together. It says, John chapter 1 verses 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So, the main thing we learn from these three verses is that Jesus is the Creator God. And there's, there can be no doubt from these verses that Jesus is the Creator God. We can see this repeated by Paul in Colossians 1, 15-16, where he says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him God created everything, in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. So there are many gods who are objects of worship in this world, but Jesus is the one true God, the creator God, and he's the only one worthy of our worship. So let's break down these verses. In the beginning. In the beginning, what's that? Well... It's the beginning of eternity. It's in the beginning was the word. It's not at the beginning, not from the beginning, but in the beginning. Jesus was already there. So Jesus predates time. Jesus predates the creation. He is eternal. And John 1, 1b um, was the word. So in the beginning was the word. The word Word is Logos. So it's a a good word to, to have a look at. The Greeks had developed a philosophy like Plato and that, and others that was built upon the assumption that the Logos, the word, was the foundation of everything on earth. The earth, Plato said, was simply a shadow of the reality of the Logos, the word, that existed somewhere in the heavens. Now, the Jews took the Greek concept of the logos one step further whereas plato said every behind everything there's a perfect thought logos the jews said that behind the thought there must be a thinker someone's got to think that perfect thought right we don't see perfection logos here on earth but it must exist somewhere said the greek yes and if it's and if there is a true perfect thought logos there must be a true perfect thinker out of the hebrew or the jew And John, in the middle of all this kind of bantering, he burst into the discussion saying, in the beginning was the logos, the word, God. So not just a philosophy, but a personality, a person. In the beginning was the logos, the perfection and the thinker. So Jesus is the originator of everything. And the word was with God, and the word was God. So the Hebrew word for god in genesis 1 1 is elohim and it's a word that speaks of three or more it's a unity of three or more if that makes sense so the use of elohim way back in genesis hints at the mystery of the trinity it's used by john helps us to remind us of the trinity so we can't help but follow john's logic and i've got it on the screen here there is a being known as the word This being is God because he is eternal in the beginning. This being is God because he is plainly called God. The Word was God. At the same time, this being does not encompass all that God is. God the Father is a distinct person from the Word. The Word was with God. So this is how we can start to prove the Trinity from the Scriptures. So the Father and the Son, the Son is known here as the Word, are equally God. Yet distinct in their person. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, yet they are equally God, with God the Holy Spirit making one God in three persons. We'll come back to verse 1 later and how the cults twist that. Verse 2 He was in the beginning with God. Contrary to the teaching of most cults, Jesus was not the first created being, He was already present. In the beginning, he has always existed. And this point is attacked so much, which is why I'm focusing on this today. John 1.3 All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So, everything was made by Jesus Christ, even this day. Now, just to get a handle on how big creation is, right? Our Son is big. Do you know how many earths could fit in our Son? 1,300,000 Earths could fit inside the sun. Now, our sun, however, is small compared to Antares, A N T E R E S, a star in our galaxy. Antares is so big that 64 of our suns could fit inside of it. <laughs> but Antares is a relatively small star. Hercules is a big star. 110 million Antares stars, could fit inside Hercules. So you start to see the, the big bigness of these things? So, 110 million entries each big enough to hold 64 of our suns, which are big enough to hold one million three hundred of our earths, could fit into Hercules. Massive. Just massive. So, when we realize this, it's clear that on this planet, we are nothing more than specks on a speck, in a speck. We just So small and and really, in the scheme of things, size-wise, we're not important. And yet most of the time, we think we're pretty spectacular. Now, put down your telescope, pick up your microscope, and consider a drop of water, which is equally amazing. So we're going from big to small here, right? So if you go back to your science class in high school, you know that each molecule of water has two atoms of hydrogen and one of oxygen. Now, if you were to enlarge each of the atoms in only a single drop of water to the size of a grain of sand, you would have enough sand to make a slab of concrete one foot thick and one half mile high, stretching from Perth to City. So there's your wall <laughs> right across Australia. So that's, that's how tiny these molecules are. So of Jesus, Paul said, all things were created by him. Colossians one sixteen. Now scientists call the atomic force that holds together the nucleus of the atom atomic glue. No one really knows how all those positive charges stick together. The Bible, however, identifies this mysterious atomic glue as Jesus Christ. Because in Colossians it says, Colossians 1.17 it says, For by him all things consist, or hold together. Jesus is holding things together. Now there's a day coming when Jesus will let go of his hold on the atom. and on the world and the result will be chaos and utter devastation It will burn in fervent heat like the worst nuclear blast you've ever experienced we'll be safe, it's alright. you find that in um, 2 Peter 3.10.11 But in this day of grace he continues to hold the galaxies, the atoms and our lives together Well, and we can ask the question, why do you exist today? Well, you were made by him, you were made for him and if you don't give your life to him like the atoms that fall apart life won't make sense you wonder what you're doing where you're going and why you're living and so the secret of life is found here in this prologue of John all things were made by him so I'm just going to go back to John one. who knows what a Gnostic is this false belief, the Gnostics well they believe that the body is evil and only the spirit is good so Gnostics insisted that if Jesus was God, he couldn't have had a body. According to the Gnostics, when Jesus walked, he left no footprints. When he ate, he didn't really swallow his food. He appeared as a person, but he actually had no physical body. So what does John say about this? We have heard him with our ears, we have seen him with our eyes, and we have touched him with our hands. Jesus has a body, said John. He is God. He became man. First John one one, That is, If Jesus did indeed have a body, argue the Gnostics, he is not God, but rather an emanation from God, an extension of God. But wait a minute, counted John in the first verse of his gospel, there are three proofs that Jesus himself is God. So Jesus is eternally God, in the beginning was the word, and whenever the beginning was, wherever it was, whatever it might have been, Jesus the word was already there. He had no beginning and he has no end. He is eternally God. Also, John tells us that Jesus is equally God. So what we're doing here is destroying these arguments of the Gnostics, or well, John has done this because that was going around when John was around. And so John is breaking down these arguments that people had against Jesus being God. So Jesus is equally God. How did John destroy that arg- um, support this argument? Well, and the word was with God. Jesus, the word, was with God, equal to the Father and the Spirit. Now, I thought there was only one God, you say. Well, there is. Remember Deuteronomy 6.4? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. But the word one is echad, E-C-H-A-D, which refers to a compound unity, like one people or one cluster of grapes. So God is a compound unity, a tri-unity. One plus one plus one does not equal one, but one times one times one equals one. And that's the mystery of the Trinity. So, lastly, Jesus is essentially God. In essence, he's God. And how does John support that argument? He says, well, and the word was God. In his very essence, Jesus is God. The Gnostics denied this, and the heresy is still alive and well today. Every cult, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons and that, um, they stem from Gnosticism. Because every cult, denies that Jesus is God the Mormons deny they say the son of God is not equal with God rather they maintain he is really the offspring of God the Jehovah's Witnesses declare that Jesus is a God and the way International has decided that although Jesus is a son of God he is not equal to God so all aspects of the Gnostic heresy so how do you if someone comes to your door what would you say to them Well, here's a couple of verses you can ask them to turn to Revelation twenty one six and you can ask them to read it and they'll say And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. And Revelation twenty two twelve to thirteen. He asked them to read this one next, And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to every man according to his work. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. So, you ask them who is coming quickly, and they'll say, oh, it's Jesus. So now we have two Alpha and Omegas. Jesus identified himself as the Alpha and Omega, and God is the Alpha and Omega, and it doesn't make sense. The only way that makes sense is that Jesus is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. If we jump back just a little bit to Genesis one one, the humanist, the atheist, the unbeliever, refuses to believe that God created the heavens and the earth. Why? Well, Romans 1 says it's because if he acknowledges that he is created by God, he will then be responsible and accountable to God. Therefore, because man wants to live and act independently from God, he rids himself of his Creator and says, Because I came from the ooze, I can live in the slime and do whatever I want. Here's a quote. In the 1940s, the seven, seven leading problems in public schools were, what do you think they were in the 1940s? Talking, chewing gum, Making noise, running in the hallways, getting out of place in line, wearing improper clothing and not putting paper in wastebaskets. It's terrible, isn't it? (laughs) 50 years later, the seven leading problems became drug abuse, alcohol abuse, pregnancy, suicide, rape, assault and burglary and arson and bombing. (laughs) We've gone from talking and gum chewing to rape and school bombing. Now something's going on, but what do we expect when we teach our kids they came from animals? Told the animals they act like animals. To counter this, we then spend millions of dollars of tax dollars on self-esteem courses to teach the high school kids that they're important. (laughs) The problem is, however, that before they ever get to the sixth period self-esteem psychology class, they have to go through fourth period biology, and they hear they come from the slime. And it just doesn't make sense. We've got to get back to the foundational presupposition that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, that he made us, has a plan for us, and wants to work in us. And without that, the entire fabric of culture begins to unravel in our homes, our schools, and our lives. Jesus is the creator. We need to come back to this truth. Now we come back to John one one. The second most commonly attacked scripture is John one. It deals with the beginning and is not attacked by the humanist but by the cultist. The cultist says, I've got a new truth to share. Jesus is not God. He's a son of God, the emanation of God. He's a prophet who speaks on behalf of God but Jesus is not God. And on this single premise, this idea, heresy is born and cults are founded. And you can recognize a cult by three characteristics. They are exclusive so only we are right, that's what they say. Only you'll only find salvation with us, but there's a you probably heard this before. If it's new, it's not true, and if it's true, it's not new <laughs> and then authority submit to me, says the cult leader. I will tell you what to read, where to go, and who to marry. and you notice they do that in the cults whenever someone tries to put this trip on you, run, Paul said. We do not seek to have authority over you, but are helpers of your joy. And that's 2 Corinthians one twenty four. Cult leaders are out to dominate, whereas true ministers of the gospel desire only to serve. And the deity of Jesus Christ. Every single cult denies the deity of Christ. Now, why is this important? Well, I came across this um, thing. I hadn't thought about it before, but I want to share it with you. Because if you deny the deity of Christ you begin to say that jesus is simply a created extension of god you open the door to every other heresy but even more or even worse than that if you deny jesus is god you minimize the work god did on your behalf when he became a man let's just say we're you know making some mints and you get your you're stuck in the machine and you're about to get sucked in And then I come around and I put my arms around you and I pull you out. But in the process, my arms get turned into hamburger. So I've lost my arms, they're all minced up. So you leave in shock, but you're unharmed. And then someone tells you that David Me destroyed his own arms to save you. And let's suppose, hearing this, you said, no, he didn't. That was someone who looked like David. That was an emanation from David. It might have been his daughter, but it wasn't David. Now, if he didn't acknowledge what I'd done on your behalf, it would be an arrogant and ignorant insult. You know, because it was me. You know, I'm the one without the arms now. And, um, and basically, you're denying that I've helped you. And that's what the cults do. With Jesus, that's what the Gnostics do when they say that God himself didn't really become a man. That it wasn't God who took the punishment for our sins. Because in Genesis 22... God gave a message to Abraham that God will provide himself a lamb, not for himself a lamb, but he would provide that he himself would be the lamb. God became a lamb, and to diminish this is blasphemy. It's the one non-negotiable heresy. God himself paid the price for our sins, not someone else. He didn't hand it off to somebody else or animation or someone less than him. He did it himself. So when it says in Romans 10.9, to confess Jesus as Lord, it's not really meaning, I mean it's true we do need to do this, to accept Jesus as Lord of every area of our life. But more to the point, to accept that Jesus is God, to say that Jesus is Lord, is to confess that He is my Creator, He is my Redeemer, He's my King, my Lover, my Friend, my everything. So to confess Jesus as Lord means to recognize that He is God in the flesh, eternally God, equally God, essentially God. And if you deny that, you are a heretic. So the Way International, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons—they're all heretics. So what are we to do with heretics? Well, according to Titus three ten, after a first or second warning, we have to have a nothing to do with them. Now, for one who constantly preaches grace and love, that sounds kind of tough. You protest, all right? It's a good question. Why do we put them aside? Why don't we have? Why do we have nothing to do with them? If a brother doesn't understand a doctrine, has erred in sin, or is stumbling in his walk, we embrace them, we stand with them, we hang in there beside them. But you must differentiate between a stumbling saint and a devouring wolf, because sheep don't hang out with wolves, hoping to convert them. When a wolf is around, the sheep split. Now, a wolf in sheep's clothing might look like a sheep, talk like a sheep, smell like a sheep, even walk like a sheep. So how then can you tell if he's a sheep? Well, you don't have to be an expert in theology or know or able to read Greek. Just watch what he eats. Okay, they have a different diet. If he eats sheep, he's a wolf. Jehovah's Witnesses and the other cults, in that they they approach people who name the name of Jesus, and begin to cause confusion and doubt. They get people off the mark of simply loving the Lord and loving one another. And And get them looking to try and improve themselves and trying to you know earn their way, and, and they, they miss out on the grace of God. so we under shepherds, pastors and that, we, we hate the wolves because we see what they do to the flock as they shift people's focus from the shepherd, Jesus, to side issues and insignificant matters in order to devour believers for their own purposes and egos. So we need to be centered on Jesus. Jesus is God. We need to love Him, learn about Him, talk to Him, and walk with Him. That was my little um, introduction to the Book of John today. Next week we'll we'll do a bit more than three verses. But I just wanted to uh, give you a gist of um, of of who the Apostle John is, what he was, what he what how God transformed him, what it was that transformed him. I believe, as I said, it was at the cross. And also to give you um, a way to defend your faith against the Gnostic heresies, which is now alive and well in the cults. And why that's such a, a nasty heresy? Because you're denying that Jesus actually paid the price for your sins. Now, I did print something, but I'm pretty sure I've left it at home. It's a one pager, and it's got the verse, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it talks about how the New World Translation mistranslates that to read in the beginning uh, was the word and the word was with God and the word was a God and it explains why that is wrong and it uncovers the mistruths behind that so I'm very sorry I didn't bring it with me this week I'll bring it next week but it goes through and it explains it debunks the arguments that they bring to you about you know the articles and all that kind of stuff so I won't go through it now but just know that you can easily defeat that argument and um, they don't have a foot to stand on. They, they're they doing the wrong thing by changing the, the scriptures to read and the word was a God. It, it is, it's not grammatically correct. Father, I just thank you for, uh, Lord, the truth, that you are the creator. Lord, that you are equally God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This is the foundation for the Trinity. And Lord, that you have existed forever, for eternity. And or nothing that was made, or you made everything that was made. You're not created. You are the creator. Lord, help us to to worship you in awe, and Lord, to like John. Just think about you dying for us on the cross, and think about, and recognize ourselves as being the person that God loved, the person that Jesus loved. And when people put us down, and when people and we don't feel so good about ourselves, we can remember. I'm the person that Jesus loves. And we can remember, Lord, the blessings that you love to pour on us and the gifts that you love to give us. Help us to be open to receive all that you want to give to us, Lord, and never forget that we are loved, and because we are loved, we have the ability to love other people, just like we are forgiven so we can forgive. We are loved so we can love. Fill us with your Spirit and give us the power to do your will. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.